All right, today at the square, Jim. I think we have a pretty, a pretty good guest. I would say. I think we have a great guest. All right, good. Good is out the window. Great is in play. <laughs> yeah, we've got a great guest today. You know, every once in a while, we believe it or not, we like to do the political thing around here. Right. We have a very exciting man who I'm told can dunk a basketball. State Senator Sean Ryan. Sean, welcome to the square. Well, thanks a lot for having me uh, on today. I didn't know you guys did the background about my basketball uh, prowess. Oh, yeah. No, we're quadrant one basketball uh, recruiters. So, yeah, we're, we're, we're trying to get you to our adult rec league team right. that we're putting together. <laughs> we'll get the Kenmore Y if you're looking for some of us. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, all right, Senator Ryan. So, first off, you've you been in the community for a while now not to date you you're a young guy but you've been in the community a lot of people know you but a lot of people don't so for our listeners who might have seen the name sean ryan but just know you as some guy help inform the wonderful square listeners of who is sean ryan well i always like to say that you know background informs who you are so you know born in buffalo lived in a marine drive apartments when i was a real little kid uh, and then moved to lackawanna my dad was a Buffalo firefighter, and my mother was a, a Lackawanna a teacher. So, and I grew up in a pretty uh, blue collar environment. And, you know, when I was a, a senior in high school, it's when all the stuff hit the fan, and you know, we decided to deindustrialize America. And uh, steel plants closed, and, you know, life really changed as we knew it at that time. And that had a real, real deep impact on me, and it certainly altered the, uh, the course of of my life and as you know a whole generation of buffalonians at that time yeah no for sure i mean i'm i'm from south buffalo originally myself and um i have family in lackawanna as well and i I can understand why that would be uh sort of shaping your political philosophy and and, uh that sort of background and, and how you came to be uh what your priorities are today i gotta ask you senator a lot of people on might be listening to the show wondering uh you made this joke for that People think you're part of the U.S. Senate, but you are, in fact, a state senator. Help us help us figure out where we did. Jim, I forgot to take my civics lesson today. What's you and Joe Manchin, me and Joe Manchin. We both messed up today. We didn't we didn't study hard enough. Tell me what a state senator does. Senator Ryan. Well, just like in the Capitol, we have a bicameral legislature, meaning there's two houses. So in Washington, there is the, the Senate and then there's the House of Representatives in Albany, there is the Senate and there is the, the Assembly. And I had served in the Assembly for almost nine years until I got elected last year um, to, to the Senate. So in order to get a bill passed, it has to go through both houses, uh, the Assembly and the Senate, and, and then uh, go to the governor. Um, my kids always keep me humble. There was an episode of Parks and Rec <laughs> where one of the people on the show was uh, dating a, a senator. And every time uh, the guy came to the office or called, they always said, the state senator is, is on the line. <laughs> so uh, it's, a, it's an inside family joke about, about that. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we've established that you are in the you're you're passing you're you're passing the bills you're you're doing all the really important stuff that happens in the state of New York. So, all right, brass tacks. We've got a legislative session coming up. What are some of the heavy hitters for you? What are some of the things that get the big check mark at the top of the list? 
for me, I always like to start with, you know, local, local priorities. You know, that, that I think of myself as somebody really trying to figure out how to make New York State work for, you know, Buffalo, Erie County, Western New York. So we have a lot of lead poisoned kids in the city of Buffalo. Um, you know, we have more kids getting poisoned by lead, lead each year in the city of Buffalo than kids numbers who were poisoned during the Flint, Michigan water crisis. So that's a lot of kids being poisoned. And, you know, one of the reasons this continues on is that, you know, insurance companies, they don't cover lead paint poisoning as an injury. So if you fall on somebody's step, you know, in in a double and you break your leg, insurance company is going to pay for that broken leg and your medical bills. But then they're going to tell you, we're not rewriting your policy unless you fix that front porch. But in the lead, there's no virtuous cycle. So a kid gets poisoned with lead. They make a claim. The insurance company says, we don't cover this. But there's no then the insurance company saying to the landlord, you have to fix this or you, you, know, you, you won't write your policy. So it just led to this awful cycle of a whole lot of kids being needlessly poisoned uh, with lead in Buffalo. And, you know, lead poisoning, you don't recover from it. You know, it damages your brain and, and, and you don't come back. So we need to fix that. And we need to fix it by having insurance companies write policies that include coverage for lead poisoning. That's super interesting. Is there, and and you might have some background on this. Do you know if there's any reason why Buffalo was so hard hit relative? Cause I mean, we can't be the only places where they, they painted their house with lead. Like, is there a reason why we're getting slammed so hard? Yeah. It's like this, you need the double whammy. So you need old housing stock and then you need poorly maintained housing stock. So I live in an area of Buffalo, the same census tract, houses built between 1900 and 1920, but very few lead poisoning cases in my census tract. But just go a few blocks west or east, uh, same housing stock, but a lot of lead poisoning. And it's because uh, the houses aren't as well maintained. So we have a lot of doubles that aren't inspected. You know, the, the, the administration who's run the city for the last 16 years, they have not done any prioritization of interior inspections. So you just get the same sort of cycle of a, you know, kid gets poisoned on Massachusetts Avenue, family moves out, next family moves in, say, you know, kid gets poisoned, same address. But nobody's going inside the apartments telling landlords, you know, you got to fix this up and you have to not have any peeling paint uh, in your house. So... It's easy to remedy, but so far it's eluded us. Well, that kind of brings us about uh, to our next point in a way of segueing. As you mentioned that the administration has been around for the last 16 years. Looks like they're going to be around for another four years at least. Uh, Maybe another 16. Who's who to knows? Say? Yeah, right. It, it could, could be forever at this point. Uh, you did endorse uh, the, uh, the winner of the Democratic primary, who unfortunately did not prove victorious in November. Uh, but what's your take on, um, is that, is that mean anything or, you know, was there, were there other things at play? You know, like I know that the mayor's coming out saying, Oh, it was a rebuke of leftist politics in Buffalo. And I think that's kind of horseshit. I think, you know, he had, if you, if I had a million dollars in 16 years of incumbency and I didn't win, then I really f-ed up. Well, you could say that's what happened in the primary, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, he. I mean, and we had we had Dave Weigel on the show a couple of months ago when he was in town covering for the for Wapo, and you know he said that he talked to the mayor and the mayor even kind of acknowledged like, yeah, I really I really punted on the primary. 
there shouldn't have been a November election, realistically. If the mayor, yeah. with, the, with, with the power of incumbency and the money he had, if he had taken anything seriously and not just figured that yep. you know, he was entitled to a fifth term, there might not have been a November election to have. Uh, you, you have a point there. You know, it led to a pretty divisive political campaign, but I don't view it at all, the results, as a repudiation of left of center uh, politics. So it was a strange grouping in the general election, right? The sort of Republicans, the state Republican Party, the local Republican Party, Buffalo developers with a lot of scare tactics, you know, ran a pretty frightening campaign. And I, you know, you got the outcome, you know, you got. But I was interested in the Walton campaign, you know, primarily because she won the primary fair and square. And I've never been in a situation where I haven't endorsed a Democrat who won a primary. But also, I was a little bit tired of, you know, no focus on neighborhoods, a lot of focus on, you know, giving tax abatements to people who don't need them. But, you know, Grant Street looks like Grant Street, and it's looked that way for 16 years with no noticeable, you know, changes. You know, same with Fillmore uh, in, in Jefferson. You know, and on top of that, the childhood poverty rate in Buffalo is just all sort of stayed the same for, for a long time. So I was interested in uh, shuffling the deck, uh, but it didn't, it didn't come out that way. And, you know, I, I worked cooperatively with the mayor for you know, last decade and, you know, continue to work cooperatively with them. We don't agree uh, on, on everything, uh, you know, that's for sure. But we all do have to sort of pull together now for the best of the city of Buffalo. But the, all the time I'm trying to do, you know, the best I can to question the status quo when it's not serving our city. And you can see right now there's an effort to tear down the most historic grain elevator in the city of Buffalo. Uh, because part of one wall is compromised. You know, and Archer Daniels Midland, who owns that grain elevator, I, I looked them up and their gross sales last year were almost $4.5 billion, billion. And you can't afford to keep your building pointed up. You know, the, the cost for them to fix that would be like the cost of me pointing up my chimney. <laughs> so, you know, very quickly they're giving an emergency demolition order, but without any reports from structural engineers, you know, just what the company wanted. And we've seen a lot of that the last few years, you know, up and down Elmwood Avenue, developers have been giving variances to knock down buildings. Often what's in their place is just muddy lots. And, you know, they're just going to come back in a few years and say, I'll save you from this muddy lot that I created but only if you let me build something that doesn't fit into my neighborhood. So I think you saw a lot of voters coming out in the primary, you know, and those were the issues that they cared about, but then it, it got, you know, muddied up to with a lot of national politics and it, it didn't serve uh, us. Well, I don't think talking about the national politics as opposed to keeping it local. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, not for nothing, Sean, it, I, I think it's fair to say you read the room, you know, like, look, India Walton did win the Democratic primary. Certainly, we're seeing a resurgence of working class organizing and I, I, people love to use like left, progressive, whatever. There's something in the air. There, there's certainly a spirit of values, uh, I guess, progressive values that are that are bubbling up and happening here in Western New York. And I think 
optimistically that the future of our region is more what India Walton's prescribing rather than Byron Brown. And I think you, I don't know, like I said, you read the room, you read the tea leaves and hopefully that's where things are going. Yeah. And can't you feel it that something's going on in Buffalo? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we had Michelle Eisen from the Starbucks workers United on a couple of weeks ago. And I mean, a rock star. Yeah. She's great. Just fantastic. And you know, how amazing is it for like, you know, not just to have a Starbucks unionize in Buffalo, but for Buffalo to be on the vanguard of unionizing Starbucks in the United States. And, you know, we've got one confirmed store, that the Elmwood store, and uh, the news came out today that Starbucks said that they will negotiate with the union, that they, they will try to negotiate in good faith. Well, remains to be seen how good faith they actually negotiate in. And, you know, it, it I think it looks promising that the Genesee Street store on Cheektowaga will probably be a union store as well. I mean, and then you've got more stores in Buffalo now saying that they want to unionize, and, and it's leading to these stores in Boston and Arizona saying that, it happened it, here, baby. It, it started here. here. You know, that's again. We when uh, you know, we talked about you know with with the governor being from West New York and India Walton being a national figure and Starbucks Workers United. At one point, this you know this fall, like around September, Buffalo was like the center of the United States. Exactly. You know, the Secretary of Labor Marty Walsh was in a week or so ago, and you know he was joking. He said, "I had to come here because it's the labor capital of America." You know, last summer we had two industrial uh, strikes that, you know, didn't really make the big press, but one was a pretty small company. And I thought these guys are going to, they're going to get it handed to them, but they didn't. They, they stuck together and they, they prevailed. They got a good contract. And then we saw the nurses go out at mm-hmm. Mercy Hospital. And that was a long trench warfare strike. Yeah. I think, you know, both sides probably thought it was going to end quicker uh, than it did. But the beautiful thing about the Mercy strike is, you know, pay wasn't one of the reasons they went on strike. You know, they went on strike because they thought their hospital wasn't being run right and they weren't being able to take care of their patients the way they wanted to. Now, come on, isn't that kind of mind blowing? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. You know, they, they, they took the union democracy to that level. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's truly inspiring that they said, like yeah, we can't do our jobs. We can't ter- we can't take care of other human beings. You're not giving us the conditions to do that. So we're putting our foot down. And they won. God love them. They won. Yeah, yeah wonderful. I met with an uh, emergency room nurse during negotiations, and she said, "I can't go on like this. You know, I work the overnight shift. On the weekend, I walk out into the ER waiting room, and I have to look around and make the pick of who's going to get the healthcare next." You know, is it the guy with chest pains or it's the guy bleeding or is it someone with a fever? She said, those aren't the choices I'm supposed to be making. Everyone should be able to be served at the same time. And, you know, I don't want to play God anymore, so I'm not doing it. And they went on strike. Well, yeah, and that that kind of segues uh, pretty well into our next topic here, Sean. So nationally, we've heard it's never come to fruition and it, it might not in our lifetimes, but we've heard about Medicare for all. Um, being yeah. a national agenda. But here in New York, uh, for a couple of years at least, there's been talk of uh, New York State of Health. Maybe if you could give our listeners uh, just a little bit on that, and, and what do you think might be the future of the New York State of Health? You know, it, it, it's confused right now. So the New York State of Health is a, it's a pretty old bill, uh, but it would make a single-payer system uh, in all of New York State and it was introduced by Assemblyman uh, Dick Godfrey, who just announced he was retiring 
uh, this year. And he's the longest serving member of, of the assembly. Uh, but for years, that bill was, I guess, somewhat of a protest bill because we would pass it in the assembly knowing that the Republican-controlled Senate would never pass it. So every year or every other year, we, we would pass the bill. But now that we have both houses, now people are saying, well, now pass that bill. And now we're really looking at the bill thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, is this going to work? You know, can it work? And Cor- you know, Rand Corporation did a review on it. It's a bit dated. We're looking at that. So it's a real tough one for me because, you know, I read about, you know, can it work? And there's data say, yeah, yeah, we're the size of some European countries. They have a single payer. We can do it. Um, and then there's other sides who come in and say, oh, we can't do it. You know, we don't have the federal taxation authority. We can't go into debt like the federal government can do and issue you know, T-bills and hope things get better. So I think there's going to be a lot of discussions on that bill. But what's changed since the bill was first introduced is when it was first introduced, there was a crisis of people not being able to access health care. And now it's changed because now we have Child Health Plus. We have an enhanced Medicaid. Uh, we have a lot more people with health care now. But the cost of health care is just going through the roof. You know, it seems like it never is below inflation. It's always wildly above inflation. And it's a real problem for our economy. I wish I had a crystal ball on how it was going to turn out. But I guess more importantly, I wish I had a crystal ball to figure out which one of these proposals are really the most based in you know rationality and logic and are going to really work for Americans. Because here's what we know. We know that we pay more for healthcare than any industrialized nation. And we also know is we have the worst healthcare outcomes. So something's broken. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny, like you're in school and they talk about states being the laboratories for democracy. And usually that means like the worst thing you can imagine coming out of certain states. Um, but this is I think this is an opportunity for New York to be like the laboratory for maybe something bigger. But we'll, we'll see if it, we'll see if it shakes out and if it works out uh, here. But uh, yeah, keep doing the fighting the good fight on that. Yeah, you really wish the federal government would allow states to expand Medicare for a Medicare for all system, you know, where the states would just pay the overages. But so far, we can't do that. And as you know, you know, New York State can't also negotiate cost of prescription drugs because that's prohibited by the federal system. So, you know, the federal system builds in these massive costs, which just makes it so much harder for a state to say, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. We, we can handle that. So here's hoping, right? Right. Yeah. Well, speaking of massive costs, <laughs> talk to us about the bills in the stadium. Are, are we? Are, uh, I I came up with an idea that maybe maybe that uh, this is the first uh, I, I'm pitching it to a state rep, but maybe you think it's a good idea. What if we build a man-made island in the lake, and it looks like Alcatraz, <laughs> and we uh, we put a stadium there, and uh, it's. We put it to referendum because people love jails. So it's like the jail stadium should pass like 90-10. I think you might be onto something there. Uh, yeah, no, the Bills stadium, I mean, uh, and we're recording on a mon- Bills Victory Monday, everybody, in case you're curious. Uh, but yeah, talk to us. Governor Hochul just came out today and pretty much intimated that it's going to be in Orchard Park. So... Throw it to you, Senator Ryan. What are you? What? What's your? T- I hate when people. It's a very sports thing I'm going to do. What's your take on the new uh, Bill Stadium? So um, I think polling goes up and down based on what the Bills did on Sunday. <laughs> yeah. 
So right now people are happy with the bills. You know, this, the stadium and how we do stadiums in America, you know, it's, it's like a, it's a small tragedy, right? Why in the world are taxpayers paying for stadiums? Like back in the day, we would taxpayers pay for a municipal stadium and that's where high school teams played. And if a professional team played there on the weekend, they just had to rent it out. So we've taken that idea of like the war Memorial stadium, the old odd, which was, it was for everything. The city owned it. The circus came to town. Wrestling came to town. We've changed that into, you know, one tenant stadiums, which is multi-billion dollar football teams, but we have to uh, carry, carry the bill. But unless the federal government acts to say we can't do it, and New York's the one who says we're not going to do it, you know, then we're going to get poached so darn quick. I'm a hockey fan. So I followed how the, the Canadian government, I don't know, 20 years ago said no more subsidies for ice arenas. And, you know, within five years, three teams were gone from Canada because United States cities just poached them with taxpayer funded stadiums. So I guess sort of like taxes in, in winter, us paying for, for a football stadium is going to be uh, I- inevitable. It's an awful way to do business, uh, but we're in it. So if we're going to be in it, I think we have to make sure that we don't delude ourselves. So I, for one, think stadiums add almost zero economic impact you know, to a community once they're built. Do you remember when they built a new hockey arena? Cobblestone District was supposed to come alive. Yeah, I, I, remember, I remember that. I was a senior in high school when, that, when the crossroads was being built. And we were yep. sold like the Crossroads Arena is going to be this. I actually, I, I grew up in Lancaster. We were on a field trip to the Central Library so we could write like a, a term paper and get books from the Central Library. And like half of us like just left and walked down to the Crossroads site to watch the, see, see the arena being built. And we're like, oh, they're saying that this is going to be like, uh, it's going to reinvigorate this whole area. And it's done dog shit for the area. Yeah, and how many games did the Sabres play? <laughs> right, yeah. Well, how many do they play here, right? That's the thing. You know, it's 40 days a year or 41 days, around 40 days a year, the Sabres are, are in Buffalo. And then maybe like maybe another 40 days, if I'm being generous, there's concerts there. So 80 days or about two and a half months of the year, that stadium's in use, the arena's in use. And the rest of the time, it just sits there. Yeah, yeah. So that was, I remember too, this great promise of this, if we build this stadium... All the cobblestone districts going to come alive. And I remember reading the paper and there was like pictures of different cities. And said it's just going to look just like this. But I don't know if I can count a bar that exists down there 365 days a year that's dependent on, on the Sabres. Yeah. And I actually, as we're talking about this, I'm kind of curious because I know the negotiations, I'm sure they're going on very much behind the scenes in some ways and very much in the public and and others, the negotiations are, but I'm just curious. um, Is there any sort of like concessions might be the wrong word, but is there any leverage that, that New York state have or any sort of things that you might want to target in negotiating for a new stadium? Like, is there anything that you want, for instance, like any kind of money from the Buffalo bills or from Pagula sports and entertainment to go towards certain programs in New York state as part of like tax revenue. Um, I, I feel like I'm a little ignorant to this, but maybe you could shed a little bit of light on that. Sure. So sometimes what, you know, cities do when there's large projects, whether it's like a big port or a new stadium is you get a, what's called a community benefits agreement. And, you know, the idea is, 
how does the community benefit from this? Now, this is kind of a tough one for that model, A, because usually there's a directly impacted community and there's already a stadium in Orchard Park. So, well, hard, hard to make a real one-for-one -one argument. We have to make sure that stadium's built, unionized labor. We have to make sure that there's good diversity in that workforce. And then we have to look towards the stadium on game days. There's a lot of employees there. So we have to make sure the ticket takers are union. We have to make sure that the stagehands are, are from the stagehand workers union. So lots of things we could do, but they're not going to get done unless we put a focus on them. There are some jobs in the Sabres arena or at Shays that pay a different wage than occur out at Rich Stadium. So we have to make sure that everyone working in that stadium has either what we call a labor peace agreement. So in exchange for this money, you agree not to hold an anti-union campaign if somebody wants to unionize. And then you have to have a living wage for all the jobs uh, in the stadium. You know, think of the people who come up and clean the stadium after every game. You know, there's no reason they can't get paid a very nice wage, except most people in America don't like to pay cleaning people nice wages. <laughs> but most employers in America don't get a bunch of public money to build your stadium. I would love to take anybody who does, doesn't want to pay the person who cleans up after them at a Bills game. I would love to just have them work one shift doing that because it is like I not even a whole shift, just one section. Clean one clean clean like 304. <laughs> and like after all those drunk rowdy knuckleheads have been there. You know what? You don't want to clean the seats because you're like, "Oh, I, I can't do that." Go pick up trash in the parking lot. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Absolute oh. mess, right? Yeah. Like you you go ahead and you roll that burnt out 55-gallon barrel that the people had like hobo fires in. <laughs> and you know there's hundreds of those in the parking lot after every game. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Jeez Louise. So we want to make sure all those all those contracts actually employ people, you know, who, who can live in our communities. Um, you know, we all know it's a part-time job, but you know, we, we have to get something in return for economic development. And then another idea that I've been tossing around is, you know, Buffalo Bills Stadium. We love the Buffalo Bills. But the city of Buffalo has really bad youth athletics. Um, our facilities are, are run down. You know, we don't have the coaches that the suburban districts often have, you know, starting with little kid athletics and, and going up. So we'd like to see if we can put together a renewal money to make sure that impoverished kids through have a shot at youth athletics. I mean, we hope that'll be part of what the bills uh, give back to the community. Yeah, absolutely. And here's hoping that, you know, we can get something out of that. Like I just, I, I despise, love the bills, bills fan, whatever. Um, I'm with you with regards to the stadiums being pretty much a massive money pit that unfortunately most municipalities are kind of, they got you by the short and curlies on. So I don't think, uh, I don't think we're not going to fund the stadium, but if we can get something generally positive for, especially the city, like you're saying here, it would be just a huge boon. I'm with you. Jim, talk to us about judge Troutman. So, uh, judge Troutman, uh, in November, I think, uh, because justice Fahey is retiring, whether he wants to or not. And judge Troutman was picked by governor Hochul to, take his spot in the Court of Appeals. Now, she has to be approved by the Senate, 
You know, she is. She would be the only upstate appeals court justice, correct? Uh, you know, I don't know about upstate, but it's certainly what we consider to be the Buffalo seat. Right. It's yeah. It's certainly considered to be the Buffalo seat, and and I I think I think everybody else is from like maybe Westchester South right now. That's currently on on the appeals court. So okay. I mean, so like, yeah. Granted, like if you live in like the you're like Soho, you think Westchester's upstate, but like for most of us, we don't think that nonsense. But it's certainly what we consider to be the Buffalo seat. Um, you know, do you think she's got a pretty good chance of being? Uh, confirmed by the Senate. I do, I do. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a strong fan of of Judge uh, Troutman, and uh, let me tell you why. Uh, when I was a, a new attorney, I was worked for Neighborhood Legal Services, and I represented poor people who were getting evicted from their apartments. And you know, the city court set up to do a lot of things, but most judges, probably truth be told, don't like to have to deal with landlord tenant disputes. And I often got Judge Troutman when she was a Buffalo City Court judge. And she handled the courtroom magnificently. And she made really poor people who were in really destitute situations, she made them feel as though this was a place where they were allowed to be. And she treated them uh, with respect. So I really admire that about Judge Troutman. And as she made her way up the court system, um, she's maintained that ability to really work with people who come in front of her and to treat them with respect. So for me, uh, that goes uh, a long way, you know, an understanding of, of the common the common person. Like that's what courts are for. But she's always done a really good job of that. Here's hoping with that one, too. Um, we're, we're in, we're deep in the, in the wonky weeds here, guys, where, you know, we put on our political caps, not our dunce caps. We, we left those at home today, boys, but we're in, we're in the weeds of the political stuff here. So we'd be remiss, Senator Ryan, if we did not ask you a little bit about redistricting We're redistricting. Now we're deep into the weeds. <laughs> yes. So we, we already had our civics lesson for the day. I think I'll give our listeners enough credit to know about redistricting and, you know, all of the uh, the ugly business that has to go on behind the scenes with that. Um, but we've got some redistrict- redistricting coming up soon, right? We do. We do. So, um, you know, next elections, everybody will be running on the new lines. So every 10 years, this is the job that needs to be done. And it's the job is made all the harder because, you know, New York State outside of New York City was so aggressively gerrymandered for 30 years uh, by the Republicans in the Senate in order to keep the majority uh, of those seats, even though they were in the minority. So we've got some pretty crazy looking looking districts. So it's going to be a tough job to straighten some of those districts out. Yeah. And what kind, I mean, you don't have to tell me like Senator so-and-so says, no way, you're not redistricting my district. Uh, but just generally, I mean, is it, are, are there a lot of calcified like, folks who are part of uh, the assembly or, or the Senate who say, you know, you're not touching my district or is it more of, it, does there seem to be more of a willingness to maybe make districts that make a little bit more sense in 2021 or 2022? There is a willingness, um, but there's, you don't have to be in office long, you know, to, to start liking your constituencies. Um, so calcified, I don't know. It's kind of a pejorative. Let's say stuck in a little bit. <laughs> so fair enough. You know, my district is this is this lakefront district that goes from you know Tondawanda all the way down to Angola, 
And it was built for, it was built for Mark Grisanti. It was built for a Republican to win it. Uh, but I'm a dam and I want it. And I like representing the people of you know, Tondawanda and the city of Tondawanda and the West side and Lackawanna. So you quickly, you know, become resistant to change once you start representing an area. Um, so, you know, you don't want to say, oh yeah, I want to get rid of this part of my district. Um, so you want to keep it all. And that makes, uh, makes things difficult sometimes. The other thing about redistricting and how they have done it for the last 30, 40 years is the Republican Senate made every Senate seat outside of New York City at the smallest allowable number. And they made the city, city of New York City seats the largest possible. And so ah, this is like this is like they, they do in the South, right? Where they basically try to minority yep. max districts. That's yeah, and that's what they did, and that's how they maintain their you know their their rule after you know after Watergate, New York State just became more and more democratic, and then they held it through the eighties redistricting, and then the ninety, and then two thousand, and you know said they shall never be able to hold it again past two thousand ten. But they they held it until 2018 against all odds. Uh, but now trying to unwind those, uh, it, it's kind of it's kind of hard. You've got Rochester split really funny ways. You've got Syracuse split really funny ways. You know, all designed to make it so you could not elect a Democrat. But then we went and elected Democrats from those very very same areas. So it's a it's a tangled mess. You know, we put together an independent redistricting committee in 2010. And that group was supposed to give us a set of maps, but that committee itself split. And so far, they have not produced a unified set of maps. They put out two sets of maps. So this is going to be, uh, it's going to be a, uh, a bit of a rocky road, but I hope the redistricting commission comes out with some independent maps that are unified and then we can take a good look at them. Yeah, we'll be looking forward to that for sure. Yeah, uh, can't wait to see redistricting and, and how it works out at the state level. Obviously, uh, the federal level. You, I mean, you guys approve what the house seat looks like. House seats look like. I mean, if I'm putting on my team jersey here, you know, obviously Republicans in a lot of the southern and some of the midwestern states have done some extreme gerrymandering to win as many house seats as possible. Do whatever you want, Senator, but it would be great to see us do some of that in New York State for the other side. You know, I mean, I don't want you to get too partisan. I want you to do your job, but, you know, wink, wink. Represent the will of the people. There's a, hey, we're, we're, hey, listen, man, we're New York. Like, there's a lot of people who are Democratic voters who I would say have had their voices kind of not heard for a long time. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a crazy situation, right? So, Redistricting used to be, oh, I'll put my thumb on the scale a little bit for my team. But, you know, now it's turned into like I'm putting a cinder block on the scale. Yeah, I th- They're I- already saying in Texas, like we're going to pick up six seats by redistricting, not by winning elections, just by redistricting. Well, I, I think of like Utah right now, because right, Utah has, I think, six congressional seats or maybe five or something, something like that, five or six congressional seats. And the way they drew the districts this year in Utah is that Every single congressional district, I think all six of them, have parts of Salt Lake City so that there's no Salt Lake City district, because if not, there actually might be a chance of a Democrat coming out of Utah. And to prevent that from happening, every single district, no matter what part of Utah you're in, also has part of Salt Lake, Salt Lake City. That's incredible. So like visualizing a big pizza, a big pizza pie right? That's, yeah, with it's, Salt Lake City in the middle and everyone gets a little triangle. 
We like we like to do Incredible. a little bit of fun stuff when we have the serious people on too. So uh, this this episode's coming out right around New Year's. Do you have any New Year's resolutions? I, I have a big one that I might need some help on. Is that during the pandemic, I have developed a uh, streaming videos uh, addiction uh, between <laughs> okay. uh, Netflix and HBO and Amazon and Apple. I seem to be spending a lot of time in front of the TV set. I don't know how to break it. Well, don't give up before season two of The Righteous Gemstones comes out. <laughs> <laughs> you got to admit, there's be- there's more high quality TV than ever before. There is. Um, oh man! So yeah. it, it's 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 hard it's hard to break it. I used to always have a few novels on my nightstand, and I noticed I still have a few novels, but they're. They've been there for over a year now. Right. They're just um, remote control holders at this point. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I keep changing the batteries in my remote control because I think I'm using that more than I am uh, my reading lamp. So so books books are in for headline news. Uh, books are back. Right. Everybody. <laughs> 2022. Everybody get your membership to Talking Leaves. Yes. You get 10% off of books and go to Talking Leaves. That's uh that that's sort of what I'm trying to do is you know just make a night or two or saying no matter what happens no matter how tired you are no matter how much how dark it is in January you cannot turn on that TV right that's and if you're not if if maybe like brand new books are outside of your range financially go to Grant Street go to Rust Belt Books that's a good one that's good one. or as the chair of the library committee. Oh. You know, you should be telling me to go to the library. Right. You know, my, go my, to the freaking library. My, it's my, great. My mother's a library trustee in the town of Lancaster. I should know about going to the library. And, and here I am saying, now just go buy books. At least I'm not saying I go to Amazon. Love the, I, I love the West Side stories. I got a funny story about that. You got a minute for me to oh, tell you? Oh, we got sure. plenty of minutes. <laughs> so my, uh, my, when my daughter needed this book on an on evening per school project. And of course she discovers that night she needs it for the next day. Classic. So I, I run over to West side story, you know, it was like day like today, it gets dark early. And, you know, I walked in, I knew, I knew where the, that part, part of the store. So I grabbed the book. And then as I was walking back to the counter, I realized they haven't turned the lights on in the store. It's pretty dark in here. And that's when I realized that the store was actually closed. <laughs> <laughs> But they didn't set the lock on the door when they left. Oh, dear God. So I'm at the counter realizing, oh, I think right now that I'm breaking and entering. <laughs> something I'm, I'm not supposed to be doing. So I uh, happened to have cash in my pocket. So I wrote a note saying, you know, I just took the grapes of wrath and I left a few bucks extra and said, thank you. And I didn't sign my name. Um, I didn't want to embarrass anybody. So I, I didn't sign my name. And I said, you know, thanks so much for being here. And then they posted that on Facebook. And I'm a lefty and I have notoriously bad handwriting. And a bunch of people responded and said, I know that chicken scratch. <laughs> that's Sean Ryan. Oh, that's funny. Oh, that's that's so that's that's my story about breaking and entering for a book. <laughs> Committing a B and E. <laughs> Uh, that's, that's hilarious. Well, we, good thing is we talked about the investigative posting about the police response and on the West side, you had like 20 minutes to get out of there before the cops would have shown up anyways. <laughs> I could have read a chapter or two. <laughs> new <That's> right. <laughs> oh, well, much, much in the vein of, uh, Stephen Colbert's better know a district, uh, Senator, why don't you throw us something interesting about the New York 60th district? 
try this one on for size. More miles of, of freshwater shorefront than any district uh, in, in New York State. Nice. So Niagara wow. River up to Lake Erie and then uh, out out to uh, out to Angola. That's a pretty good stretch. Oh, so that's why you like my island stadium ideas because it would be in your district. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we're we're always thinking here. Um, wow, that's I I had no idea that that I mean you say it out loud and it makes sense, but damn, that's a lot of that's a lot of water. Yes, yes, and the. Uh, Represent also uh, Grand Island, the largest freshwater island in North America. Wow. So I'm hearing a lot like, of water facts. Talk to your staff about this, uh, your, your your campaign staff, not your governmental staff. I know like that's as somebody who worked in in various levels of government at governmental staff two separate things. But talk to your campaign staff. Maybe you could have like a flotilla as a fundraiser. Because you have so much fresh water. Oh, that's a great idea. And then, you know, you're just distinguishing between the political staff and the governmental staff. I, I think uh, former Governor Cuomo's in a little hot water. <laughs> his, his book deal. Right. He, well, he, was, he must have never known the difference between governmental staff and, and political staff. Uh, I, I, I've worked at the, the, at the county, state, and federal level as governmental staff, and I know the difference, and I definitely would never cross those lines. No. You weren't drafting books for your your boss on work time for what? private. Uh, yeah, no, no. What, I was trying to sell them at West Side Stories, but some guy kept breaking in and stealing them. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Senator Sean Ryan, man, you're great. We got to have you back here sometime. I, I really enjoyed talking to you. Um, where can where can the fine listeners of the Square Podcast, Senator? Where can they find you on social media, on the internet, and what do you got going on? Well, you know, I, I uh, I'm not I'm not too big in the Twitter world, but you know, we 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 tweet, and it's uh, not too hard. Sean Ryan Senate pops uh, right up. Uh, we're in the Facebook world, um, and you know, we're out there doing politics. And we're out there, you know, doing our thing. So January 4th this year, I'm doing a campaign kickoff uh, at the Phoenix restaurant on, uh, on, on military. Um, so if you'd like to come by for that, uh, that, that would be great. That's just a great restaurant, by the way. If, if, if even if, you know, whether you go there for go to show, go to Senator Ryan's fundraiser, but also just go there. It's a great restaurant. I love their fish fry. Oh, don't they have a great fish fry? Oh, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Big, big Dave behind the bar is a uh, a, a great great bartender. Mm-hmm. Uh, always always a smile, and uh, I, I I love going there. And I, I said military, but it's on it's on Amherst uh, mm-hmm. Street. I, I misspoke there, but they have good food. So come by the Phoenix. Absolutely. Well, Senator Ryan, thanks for joining us, man, and uh, have a good night. Thanks a bunch. I really enjoyed our conversation. I hope you folks have a good night too.